Hey guys, welcome to episode two of The Absurdity. I am Ryan Becker, your host, and I am going to start today by saying that I'm sorry that it's been so long. I had originally wanted to do this once a week, but at the time that I actually began this, it turned out to be a terrible time to start because I had a last second life transition that happened. I, instead of being able to go to seminary and pursue a master's degree, got hired to pastor two of the three churches that I had for the next three years. And so my life quickly became a change from preparing to go to seminary to having to find a place to live very soon and figure out all of the logistics of moving and the transition to now pastoring two churches full time. And this meant a full change of responsibility between an interim pastor and a full-time pastor. On top of that, my laptop actually broke and started going through some different issues. My laptop casing is cracked in half, and I had a few issues that required me to have to reinstall everything from the get-go. And so when all of this happened, I just decided to wait until I could actually buckle down and get myself a new microphone, and I actually have a new computer coming in the mail. And so now that things are actually starting to get settled down, I moved in and I've gotten started, I can continue this in the way that I had hoped. It may happen every other week just because of the weight of my current responsibilities, but I will do my best to get this out on a regular basis. So today's episode, I want to talk about white privilege and admitting bias. And, and these two things are incredibly difficult to do. Because white privilege inherently tends to be a, an accusatory term. And so when white people hear this, they say, oh, that's, that's not me. And walls go up. And so I want to talk about letting down those walls and how do we navigate these conversations in a way that is non-defensive, but actually open to understanding and learning. A few weeks ago. I was driving through my old apartment complex, and this was a luxury apartment complex. The rent for an apartment was typically about $1,000 a month, $1,200 a month, depending on what option you chose. And as I was driving back to my apartment, I looked over and I saw a man standing on his porch. Now, before I describe to you that man, I need to tell you a little bit of how I grew up. And this isn't the fault of my parents. This isn't necessarily the fault of anyone necessarily. But in my growing up as a conservative Adventist Christian youth and, and going through the private school system created by Adventists throughout my life, I began to learn a few things about people. And these weren't things that I was told outright. They weren't explicitly mentioned they were just things that I began to observe and note. I grew up in a suburban neighborhood, and all of my neighbors are white back home. And any time at school that I was presented with any sort of community service or outreach organization or opportunity to get involved in, it was always plastered with images of an African-American or some poor Indian kid or some poor Asian kid in a different country, some poor Hispanic kid in a different country. And anytime that we would do community outreach in, in high school, it was always to go to these areas of, of the homeless or otherwise 
and the areas that I was taken to, the areas that I that I experienced and saw with my own eyes happened to be mainly filled with people of another color. And in fact, there was one part of a town near me where we would actually refer to it as the other side of the train tracks. And when you crossed the train tracks, quote unquote, you would see only one type of person. You would only see black people dressed up in uh, tank tops and gym shorts or jean shorts and people just sitting on their porches drinking. And, and this was the image that was put into my mind. And it wasn't explicitly taught by any of my educators, by any of my parents. No one, no one told me that these are the people that live here and these are the only types of people that live here. And they're not the only types of people that live there. But they're the only types of people that I saw. And so when I looked at my life surrounded by white, middle-class Americans, and then I looked at community outreach and otherwise, I saw the poor and disadvantaged people as black, Hispanic, Asian, you name it. And I never really noticed this until this day when I was driving in my apartment complex. The man standing on his porch was a probably mid-20s black guy with a tank top, khaki shorts, and just listening to music through his headphones, and he's hanging out. And the first thought in my head, which normally shouldn't have been anything because it doesn't matter, but the first thought in my head was, wow, good for him that he found a way to make enough money to live in an apartment complex like this. This was just in July that this happened. And it wasn't like in my mind I thought that this was what he deserved or what he didn't deserve. It was just because of associations of my past, I immediately assumed something needed to be true about his life and that he had overcome some significant thing to get out of a poor area and into a middle-class, whiter area. And I'm going to come back to that story because that's not okay. But it leads into a point that I'm going to make a little later. So we're talking about white privilege. And, and here's what I, want to, what I want to do before I discuss it is I want to actually define what I mean by white privilege and what I've learned by, from a lot of my peers and friends, what white privilege seems to be. And ultimately, it, become, it comes down to this. White privilege is really just being able to enjoy the normalcies of life without giving them a second thought. That when you get pulled over by a police officer, you can expect to maybe get a fine or a warning and then get let go without a problem. It's being able to assume different things about your life and not have to give them a second thought. And there's nothing inherently wrong with white privilege as it stands. White privilege itself is not necessarily a bad thing because the idea is that white privilege is just normal life. The problem with white privilege, and I love this quote from a former professor of mine, Dr. Leatherman from, from Southern. He says that the problem with white privilege is that it isn't everybody privilege. So white privilege in itself is not the bad thing. The problem with white privilege is not everyone has it. Not everyone has the ability to live their life without any sort of fear or without any sort of expectation hanging over their life. White privilege is an issue if you are okay with others not having the same. 
There's a quote by Louis C.K. The only time you look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You don't look in your neighbor's bowl to see if you have as much as them. White privilege is when we assume everyone has as much as us. And when they say they don't, we do absolutely nothing to make it equal. Or, and this is even worse, we tell them that they deserve it. White privilege is the ability to look at someone else's bull and judge their person without any personal ramifications to ourselves. That's where white privilege gets abused. That's where we are having an issue because there are people with nothing or very little in their bulls who are looking up at us and saying, hey, can you please give us some? Like, can we all have the same amount? Can we all be equal? Paul talks about a little bit of this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about how the Corinthians were approaching communion. And he says, some of you eat and eat and eat while others go hungry and others go thirsty and you are sitting here getting drunk off of the communion wine. What kind of attitude is this where we would hoard so much for ourselves and not make sure others have enough? And even the language that they look up at us. Because inherently we see money and poverty as status that somehow if I make more or if I have more, I am above. And that's not the case. True equality is where we're all on the same level regardless of pay scale. And regardless of how much we own. So I want to talk about now an expanded definition of racism, because this ties into my earlier story. And this is why I think a lot of white people are afraid of admitting to racism or admitting to benefiting from any sort of racism in their life, because the way that white people have been taught racism exists is just as one thing, and it's explicit hatred towards someone for the pigment of their skin explicit hatred. And so this is things like the KKK. This is things like groups and organizations which target people for their skin color. And these are, this is referring to things like segregation in the overt and explicit ways in which racism was expressed. And so the second that someone is accused of being a racist, these are the organizations and these are the things that are put into their minds. And so they say, no, 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 I'm not that. I've never burned a cross on someone's yard. I've never dressed up in all white. I've never forced a black person to drink from a different drinking fountain. But I would argue that there's a second part to racism, and I think this is the part that needs to be explored and discussed more, and that's this. Racism is not just explicit hatred. It is also an implicit expectation of another's life. You see, because of the way that I had grown up and because of the observations that I had made and been exposed to in my life, I began to expect that black people would live in a certain part of town and in a certain way. And so the second I saw one outside of that, I said, man, good for him. And I immediately assumed his origins is different than they wait, than what they might actually be. I assumed something over that man's life that he did not ask for and that he did not deserve, and I did it because of his skin color. 
And it wasn't done in hatred. It wasn't done because I was threatened in my whiteness. It was just the results of me growing up. And this implicit expectation can be, can be un, completely unconscious. We may not even know it. We may not even see it. And it can happen so many times throughout our lives that we don't actually catch on to it because we're not attuned to it. We're not looking for it. We're not actively trying to find the ways in which we implicitly expect something of another's life. And so when we talk about white privilege and when we talk about racism, I want to frame them in these ways. That white privilege is not a bad thing unless it's not available for everyone. White privilege should be everybody privilege. So we're not saying that whites don't deserve those privileges. We're saying that everyone should have access to those privileges. Everyone should be treated the same way and everyone should have the expectations to be treated normally. And when we talk about racism, I'm not just talking about explicit hatred towards someone. I'm also talking about implicit expectations over another's life. I'm talking about the ways in which we treat people that are subtle and that we don't always notice. And you see, I'm a racist because of those implicit expectations. Now, there are two ways to admit to racism. Number one is to admit it in pride and to continue on as normal. To say, yeah, I'm a racist because I hate black people, or I'm a racist because I hate Hispanic people, or I hate Asian people, or I hate Indian people. There are different ways to be racist. And there's one way to admit it in pride. And then to continue on as normal. And when most people are called racist or told they're racist or that they have racist roots, this is the number one way they think that they're forced to admit it. You're telling me to admit that I hate and that's not what I do. I don't hate anyone. I love people or the term colorblind comes up, which I have different issues with that I'll deal with a little later. But the second one, the second way to admit to racism is I think the goal here, and I think this is the one that Black Lives Matter and other movements are aiming for, and that's this, to admit to racism and repent to it. Admit to racism and repent of it. To turn away from it is what repenting means, to physically turn away from an action and if you're turning away from something, if you're trying to make a change in your life, you become aware of all the different ways that you're trying to avoid committing that act. You're attuned to when it shows up in your life. You're attuned to the warning signs when that action might come. And so you're trying to do everything you can to change and prevent that action from happening again. That is what repentance means, to turn away from something. And so this is the goal, to admit, hey, I'm a racist because of these implicit expectations, and I don't want that anymore. I want to be able to treat everyone equal. That's the goal of admitting to any sort of implicit racism. 
And I understand that you may not be the source of your implicit expectations, that others may have cast them on you. The way you grew up may have cast it on you. You may not be the individual source of it. But it's important that we repent of an evil that may have been cast on us without our consent. That's okay to repent of an evil that's cast on you without your consent. This is helpful because evil needs to be called by its rightful name. That a parent who is a child abuser because their parent abused them, that they would turn away from it, even though inherently they weren't trying to be abusive, they were raised in a way that that's what they were taught. It's an evil that was cast on them by their parents that they need to repent from. We can safely say and admit that the system is tilted in favor of one part of the population or of some parts of the population. We can admit that we benefit from that system as white people. And in admitting that, it doesn't mean that we want it to stay that way. It just means that we can be determined to help making the playing field equal. We can try to make a difference and to make things equal for people. These are not mutually exclusive ideas that if you admit you're racist, then it means that you aren't in favor of trying to make things better. In fact, what we're trying to do is admit and call out racism by its name wherever it exists and in whatever form it exists so that we can get rid of it. And we can do this while also admitting that sometimes we stack the deck against ourselves. Social groups across all colors, ages, income, gaps, can both be victims of themselves and victims of a system set up to oppress them. They can be victims of both. It is not just an and or. I mean, it's not just an or, an either or. It is an and. But nothing changes if we don't take personal ownership where we can. If I don't take ownership over the racism in my heart, then it will never change. And so I need to focus on my actions and how I treat other people. And this doesn't mean that you have to march with Black Lives Matter. This doesn't mean you have to suddenly become such some huge activist for social justice. All it means is that you have decided to become self-aware to how you are treating people and to how your actions are being perceived. Racism exists in both forms, both explicit hatred and implicit expectation. And admitting one is a racist does not mean you are admitting to outright hatred. Right now, in today's America, admitting to racism in order to repent is where we will move forward. And I've heard this quote. I've heard this quote a lot. Each man can earn his way in America. I worked my way to where I am and I earned it. Why can't you do the same? Ironically, I only really hear this from white people. Did I say ironically? Because that was an inaccurate word. I only hear this from white people and it doesn't surprise me at all. Here's the problem with this quote. You are still 
working in an economic and political climate which largely exists because of several hundred years worth of exploitation of minority social and racial groups. This country was built on the work and labor of minorities. And we still benefit from that today. But these groups are so much more than the labor that they did. They are so much more than any work that they were forced to do. And if you don't believe me that you exist in that climate, I want to give you an example of a way that this is actually happening today. A great look at this is in Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. In the episode Generous Orthodoxy, he discusses a semi-recent controversy over Woodrow Wilson's image being plastered and honored at Princeton despite his overtly and explicitly racist behavior throughout his life. And Malcolm mentions at one point about how all of the people honored at Princeton are rich white people and he lists them off. And so what happens is if you are a black student walking through those halls where you see all of these pictures of rich white people, it sends a message to you that says quite, quite upfront and blatantly to your face that you don't have the aesthetic to be successful like these men. To be a white student and walk through these halls is to think nothing of it. This is where white privilege is a problem because we assume that everyone has it just as equal as us, but we live in a society which has favored us from day one. And so there's nothing wrong with the fact that you worked your way to where you are. The problem is that it's couched in a history that abused and took advantage of other people. And it's okay to call out that history for what it is. And it's okay to help others get to where you are. See, we need to create a platform in which everyone has a fair chance in the game. We need to acknowledge those parts of our history which are ugly and hate-filled. And we need to build a future which is loving and equal. And this begins by yours and by my own personal behavior in how we treat people. That's where the change happens. It doesn't necessarily have to happen on a policy level. Yes, segregation was ended decades ago, but that doesn't necessarily mean that racism did because racism has to do with personal behavior and personal viewpoints, not necessarily the state of politics and the state of the law. So to end racism means that you are focused on the personal behaviors that you can change, and you're focused on looking for those implicit expectations over others' lives. So question to ask yourself, how can I make sure I treat people fairly? Begin looking for the moments, just like my opening story, in which implicit expectations may arise. And as soon as they happen, call them by what they are, repent of them, and work to stop them from happening in the future. Start to identify the ways in which you've been trained to look for faults 
and a certain state of being of another person because of their color or because of their state in society. And I want to end today's podcast with the history between the Jews and the Gentiles as recorded in in Scripture. See, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other, the Jews being God's people and the Samaritans being Gentiles. Gentile was literally anyone who was not a Jew. And so I want to talk about the Samaritans especially because the Jews, whenever they would travel from country to country, they would actually avoid Samaria altogether. Even if they could pass through for a direct route, they would literally walk around Samaria to avoid even going through that country because they wanted nothing to do with those people. To breed or fall in love with a Samaritan as a Jew, to breed with them, was to basically give up everything in your homeland as a Jew, was to renounce your, your kinsmanship to God's people. It was to commit a sin because you were unequally yoking yourself with someone who is not a part of God's people. It is an act of rebellion. And this was as pure of a racism as there could be. See, since Jews believed they were God's people, they wouldn't be tainted by involving themselves with anyone who wasn't part of God's people. And this hatred existed for centuries. Literal centuries. But God had a plan, and I want to read this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you end up looking for a Bible version to read, I love this version a lot. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he's writing to a group that is mainly Gentile. And he says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. In other words, you are called different from those who are a part of the normal group. Remember that at that time, before Christ came, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And his purpose was to create in in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Jesus, through his sacrifice, broke down that dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he ended centuries of racism by that act. And this took time for the Jews to be able to figure out how to incorporate Gentiles and figure out how to act in a way that was loving and and regard them as equal because it takes time to undo the hatred of centuries. It doesn't just take a few decades. It takes a long 
long time. In fact, Peter in Galatians 2 had an issue where he pretended like he didn't know any Gentiles so that his Jewish friends, when they came to see him, wouldn't think that he was mingling with people who were lesser. And this is after the time that Christ died. And so do you understand that hatred takes time to end? But Christ, by his sacrifice, brought it to an end. And so it's time for the Jews and the Gentiles to be living as one, being united in Christ. And today I would argue that that dividing wall exists in two main areas. Skin skin pigmentation and religion. And when I say religion, specifically I mean Islam and the rest of the world. But that's a later episode and that's a growing wall. That's a wall that's currently being built. But I want to discuss right now mainly skin pigmentation. Because if God united people by ending a hatred which lasted for centuries then isn't it possible that he can do the exact same thing today? And hasn't he called Christians to be those which would show the world by their love that they are his disciples? If you are a Christian, that dividing wall was torn down 2,000 years ago. But people have been trying to rebuild it ever since. And it's time that that wall gets torn down once more, because in Christ, there is no dividing wall. And in an equal society, whether Christian or not, everyone should have a fair chance. It's okay to admit that you have benefited from racism, even if you yourself did not seek out that benefit personally. It's okay to admit to implicit expectations, and it's okay to admit to racism without having an explicit hatred. It's okay to admit that we benefit from white privilege as white Americans. But it's not okay to leave it there. If we leave it there, then we're not making a difference. We need to be making sure that there is enough in our neighbor's bowl. We need to make sure that everyone is being treated equal. It is time to tear down that dividing wall.